This is the ADHD Fix: How to Achieve Your Potential, the podcast to help you use 15 proven strategies to discover the many gifts of ADHD. I'm Henry J. Svek, and for over 30 years, I helped others diagnose and treat ADHD. Now retired, I turn my attention back to those 15 strategies I use to help achieve my potential with ADHD. Learning what I did to help myself will help you achieve your success. ADHD is a gift. Let's get started. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Henry Jaysfeck. This week I'm going to be discussing who is pointing the finger. In other words, who who says that maybe you yourself or your child may have ADHD. When I started working in practice many years ago, this was a really significant issue of who was pointing the finger because the science at that time suggested that if someone was pointing the finger, primarily a classroom teacher, it is highly likely. I think at that time the The rates were like 95% of the time the child's diagnosed. Often the children were being diagnosed based on a checklist uh, completed by the teacher. So it makes sense that if a a teacher is pointing the finger, that it would, um, you know, would end up becoming a truth that that child was diagnosed with ADHD. Parents also, however, I find have been very good at you know watching their children, particularly if they have comparisons with other children, which we don't want to make because we know our children are all unique and individualized, but. Certainly, with temperament and different changes, and often in younger children, we'll see the um, combined issue of perhaps ADHD and attentive type, as I call it, uh, with some temperament oppositional, and sometimes, you know, distractibility to the point where we have behavioral problems under the age of six. Now, in practice, I would never. Assess a child until they were at least six years of age. I don't believe it's possible. Now, some believe it is. Some scientists, some psychiatrists, some physicians will assess children. I even heard something as young as two, which I have absolutely no idea how that's done. But I think it's important to understand the power of pointing that finger. If you're an educator, a teacher, a parent, um, and, and it because often it then results in a diagnosis, which You know, later in podcasts, I'll talk about the proper assessment process, and maybe have a guest on to talk about that because I'm now out of that situation. But I think it's important to remember that many things can look like ADHD, but in fact, are not. So when we talk about pointing the finger, sometimes children today will actually self-refer. So depending on the age, uh, the child may. You know, say, look, you know, there's something wrong. I'm having trouble p- focusing, paying attention. Often, it's around school issues. So the child may self-refer, and probably the second most important would be the parent. We see parents would would ask us for an evaluation based on what they're watching and seeing, or the school has requested that the child receive an assessment for ADHD. And this is where it gets to be rather difficult. There was a time. We had to unfortunately challenge some educators who felt that they were they could diagnose. So um, principals would say to parents, you know, if you don't put your child on medication, they can't come back to my school. Uh, many inappropriate parts to that request we won't get into, but 
The point of all that is that would result in a referral. And I think one of the most important things, if you're a clinician or if you're a person who are seeing who is seeing children or adults who believe or someone believes they have ADHD is to really work through the evaluation process so that we don't either miss, meaning underrepresent or overrepresent children who are referred. Schools generally, we found, referred because of behavior. Uh, some incredible educators would refer because of um, sort of my situation as we go up the grades, uh, performance declines because the work becomes much more complex. So that it's important to look at the context of what is happening. Now for adults, it's a self-referral, often a spouse or partner referral, and sometimes it comes from the employer where the employer requires or asks that the person get assessed because of declining performance. So let, let's go through a little bit about the steps in, in, you know, what happens. Teachers may often point the finger that something's wrong, but they're not trained, remember, to assess or diagnose ADHD. Now, while we know checklists and a five-minute interview are, are used to complete the assessment, that's not enough. So pointing the finger is a start or saying, I think this person may need an assessment. But just doing a checklist and then confirming it based on a five-minute interview is not acceptable. You need a comprehensive assessment. And the purpose of this initial chapter really was to focus on putting into context who is pointing the finger. And I think as parents, we sometimes, and I want to go back to talk a little bit about teacher education because I think it's, it's very important to look at this as well as the education of many human resource departments or people running organizations who feel um, an employee or you may need an assessment. There are very few good resources. I mean, there, there are thousands and thousands of, uh, you know, if you Google ADHD adult or children, you're going to find all kinds of things. The question is, how do you work through that to get the things that matter? And so when we look at teacher education, because remember, there's a, there's a summary made when a teacher sees behavior and then you go for a parent council meeting or, or child meeting, they point it out to you. They may um, use the term or, or they may say things like, and this is what we prefer, under these conditions. So for example, when doing seat work, Henry has a hard time staying on task, especially around two or three in the afternoon. Or after recess in the afternoon, I think they don't even call it recess anymore. Um, after break or nutrition break, he seems to do better and so on. So you, you try to get what we would call more descriptive operational, data-based, observational kinds of comments, as opposed to, he doesn't pay attention, we think he has ADHD. That doesn't really tell us anything. Um, I'm also interested in what time of day, of course, um, how do they respond to the work? And we often see children and adults who are gifted, who appear to be distracted because they are, because they're really you know, they did the work in front of them about five years ago and they really don't care. It's boring. It's, I kind of look at, I don't know if you've ever had women's training as an adult or as a parent where you go in and learn for a day about, you know, how to read labels. 
Uh, I'm not talking if you're handling toxic material. I'm talking about the general Wemyss kind of thing where you go in and have to learn about product labels and all that other stuff. And for a while there, I know when I was doing my internship and I had no contact with any hazardous material or anything, it was required that everyone still take that training. And, and if you have ADHD, you know, and you're in an environment that's not, um, sorry, if you're gifted, well, if you're gifted ADHD, that's another issue. But if you're, if you're gifted and you're in an environment where you're not being challenged, it's a lot like a lifetime of women's training. Now think about that. How do you stay focused? How do you continue to, to keep your brain active when you're in a situation where you're not being challenged? We see this quite a bit with children who are misdiagnosed as having ADHD when in fact they do not. They, ha they have a gifted profile. Some have gifted and ADHD, which we'll get to in later podcasts. We call that complex ADHD, where you have more than two or three things going on, which is not uncommon. Let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor. Assessing ADHD requires more than a five-minute office visit. The experienced, multidisciplinary team at OSR Clinics will walk with you and your family through the comprehensive assessment and diagnosis process and will be by your side when it comes to implementation of strategies and advocacy for your child. Visit osrclinics.com to book your free info session today. That's osrclinics.com. So back to my, so, so when I graduated Michigan State, I, I, because they didn't even, you know, really want me to go to Western, they didn't give me an interview to do my PhD, which is why I ended up at Michigan State. I thought my revenge would be to lecture up there. So I got a chance to lecture at teacher's colleges. At that time, I believe it was called Althaus College. And I was taking the place of some professors who were on sabbatical. And I taught a class on basically at that time, I think they called it the psychology of education or special education. Basically, it was a way to help teachers understand, you know, giftedness, learning disabilities and so on. My class was an option. So technically, you could graduate as a teacher and have absolutely zero knowledge of any of the concepts that we talk about in this podcast or other podcasts about gifted. I know I taught graduate school um, gifted classes, which was a phenomenally wonderful experience for people uh, doing graduate school. And, you know, how do you assess a gifted child? There was some, there's some really fascinating, you know, drilling down you have to be to understand that brain of a gifted child, let alone add to that ADHD and perhaps even a learning disability. And so when all in one person, by the way, so when you when you mention that most educators really give you that blank stare because they've never had the training and that's because they haven't had the training and I blame the colleges of education. I can't believe they've now extended it in many provinces. It's two years. I hope there's at least six months working on special populations because those are the children who um, who are going to be either taking a lot of resources in class or they're going to be the next generation of incredible leaders on the planet. And I'm talking children with disabilities or, or gifted potential or ADHD, which is the case of this podcast. So don't assume as a parent when you go to a class for a family or parent consult that the person pointing the finger knows anything. Um, 
no disrespect, but back when I taught up at the college, many of the students would call it clown college. And by the way, none of the grades you get at teacher's college to, to become a teacher ever count for anything. You can't use those grades to get into graduate school. No one cares about the grades because they realize the curriculum is so suspect. So it's, it's a very, very shoddy experience. I know back as well when I uh, was uh, teaching up there. And also, by the way, I attended as a student in my last year at Western in 1978 when I was playing football. Uh, I believe at that time we had a grand total of, I believe, four or six weeks of actual time in a classroom. That would have been it. Now I think that's been extended, thankfully. But I'm not sure how well the teachers who take on these students are vetted or are, you know, what allows a teacher to say, yeah, I'll, I'll bring on a student teacher in my classroom. Uh, and and that's, that was a really an eye-opener when I went out, the, the quality of some of the teachers I had to get, you know, basically mentored by, who were totally incompetent, unethical, in one case, uh, or racist. And so I, as you would expect, I voiced what I thought about it. And I remember the one teacher, um, just a horrible story. I, you know, you sit at the back when you're a student teacher, the first week I think it is, you have to watch what happens and she had this young man in a closet with the door open you remember you know those 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 doors where children would hang up their coats it's sort of like not a sliding door but it kind of opens up so it kind of looks like part of the classroom but it was actually a closet and the first day I was there she walked by and she said something to the effect that you're disgusting and she closed the doors on the child in the closet and the class laughed so I went over, opened the door, and put my desk beside this young person. She did not like that. And I remember she called the, uh, my supervisor at Teachers College and said that uh, I was a problem because I wasn't cooperating and helping her on a professional development day. And so the, so the person from the college came out, and I let her know what went on and what happened. And I, was, I didn't want to, you know... I said, how do we pursue this? She, should not, she said, well, you can't do anything. And I said, well, it's, it's not okay. And I got through it, but it was not only a clown college, but it was also a place where people were trained by teachers who had no right to be in the profession. They were not only incompetent, they were evil and not nice people. And I saw this in, in uh, I would say, probably two out of my four placements that year. That's a small sample. Uh, one, one other... Uh, supply teacher, I believe it was great, uh, sorry, uh, mentor teacher, I believe it was grade seven. And we were standing in a gym and I was doing some basketball and I accidentally um, backed up and I didn't step on, but I kind of brushed against a kid, a young man in grade seven. So he got upset, started crying and ran into the bathroom. And I said, I looked over at the teacher. I said, like, like, what am I supposed to do? I'm sorry. I took a step back and he was there. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. He said, the thing you have to do, he said, the first day, you know, I've done this many times. You take the toughest kid in the room, uh, you know, you put him in the bathroom, put him up against the wall, and you, you lift him up and you tell him that you're the boss and, you know, he, he's a problem kid and you didn't do anything wrong. I said, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it was my mistake. I should apologize. And so that was the quality of the training um, from the mentors that took on um, students. So not only is it a, uh, 
uh, not an effective training program. Um, it is not one where, at that time, hopefully that's changed, where the teachers were, in fact, vetted, that trained. And remember, these, you now go as a parent. And what I've learned, I mean, I have, I've had, I have three children, but when I would go to these meetings, it doesn't matter your background, education, or training. They make you feel like you know nothing. And of course, when I would go to these meetings, I remember I went to one meeting and, and the teacher was trying to tell me that phonics would not work today to help someone learn to read. Of course, that's, a, that's not true. That's a lie. It's a political statement. Phonics still works for a significant number of children who need that modality. We know there are many other ways to teach reading, but some children desperately need phonics. It's the truth. Um, and I know this because when I worked uh, with, uh, when I was a teacher briefly and worked with children who were kicked out and expelled from school and they were illiterate, I was able to get some grade two materials and grade three materials from the, um, at that time it was called the Cross-Cultural Learning Center on Dundas Street in London, Ontario. They had surplus books and they would let me go in and grab any book that would help my students. And of course, with the, the trends in education, uh, schools would throw out books because the publishers would say, well, we have a new way to teach reading and they would throw out all the phonics and so on. So anyway, we were able to teach, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds to read using old methods that work. They're not old. They're just, they're just sound methods. So when, when someone's pointing the finger and you have to go to that school meeting and someone starts making you feel like not great, think of how a child feels in that situation. And I think it's important to advocate um, because when we all go away, you know, your child's sitting there in that classroom. And, and so you have to weigh that with what strategies you need. And in some cases, that teacher should not be around your child. In some cases, it's the most wonderful. And you wish that teacher would go with your child right through to university. But of course, that's not going to happen. And when you find a teacher, like we all have, ha have found incredible teachers, you know, you, you just want, you just want to reward them and, you know, forget an apple a day. You just want to feel incredible about them. So that's, sorry to go on so far, but I want you as a parent to understand, and as an adult as well, the power that educators have with very little knowledge behind it. It's almost like the old saying, big hat, no cattle. And then when you get to the next level of what are called special education consultants, they've taken extra weekend classes or they've taken extra training, but they're not a lot better. I, I really found the, the, the experienced teachers were the best, teachers who had worked 20, 30 years and are doing it out of passion, take every class you throw at them, are open-minded, are willing to discuss, do not go beyond their area of competence. Those are unbelievably underpaid educators. The colleagues at that time, the uh, psychologists that I would interact with, in most cases were incredibly incompetent, were incredibly arrogant, were unwilling to accept an assessment that wasn't done by their staff or put quotation marks, people. And um, in most cases, uh, did not care about the child we would be talking about at any one time. So I would simply use advocacy. And we, in our reports, we would put letters and the legislation that required them to make changes for children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD or ADD. Remember the term changed over time based on the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders put out by the American Psychiatric Association.
So that's pointing the finger in an educational environment. Then when you get to the college or university environment, which we've had some experiences with, it becomes problematic because generally um, many uh, gifted uh, first, second year university students have never been diagnosed. Uh, because the the problems they have they're so they're so incredibly full of potential that it doesn't show up till much later in their academic careers or even professional careers you know we've worked with physicians in training lawyers all types of professionals who suddenly need you know they've maxed out they they can no longer sort of wing it without using strategies after a diagnosis so then we approach the usual uh, special learning uh, programs at universities. And Joshua, who's a co-author of the book, had an incredibly positive experience um, with his at the University of Waterloo. So it's really, like most situations, based on the people in those programs. And I strongly urge if a person has been uh, diagnosed and properly assessed in elementary or high school that those um, services, those that information is shared at the next level so that the college or university experience can be incredibly positive. On a final note, the the work referral or the referral from a spouse, where when we get into adulthood, it becomes more and more difficult to diagnose and requires more and more of a comprehensive evaluation. The history taking is is very important, as is the neuroimaging, and we're going to talk about all that in the assessment podcast. But, but please, as an adult, make sure that if you're going to go through an assessment process, it is comprehensive because many things can look like ADHD and are not. And also, sometimes we, we see diagnosis by prescription. So there's a brief interview. The person is placed on medications. And then in a six-week visit, the person says, I feel much better. The doctor says, see, you do have ADHD. Well, there are many conditions uh, for which uh, ADHD medications can help that have nothing to do with ADHD. And there are, there are a number of studies out there. So you really can't replace a comprehensive evaluation. But as an adult, be careful. We also want to screen for things like um, concussion, um, past history of concussion. Uh, there's a whole host of other things we'll talk about. So that is when the finger is pointed by um, spouse, yourself as an adult, if you're college, university, perhaps, if you're lucky, most people don't get that one-on-one -on -one attention to have a professor refer them. It'll be self-referral or family referral. Or as a HR department referral where there's an issue pertaining to focus, concentration, and changing environments. So that's pointing the finger. Uh, look forward to speaking with you again next time. Remember, we alternate guests. If you, if you know someone who is... Uh, successful, um, who has been diagnosed with ADHD, and success can be measured many different ways. Um, please uh, get in touch with us. We'd love to have them, or you may be that person on the podcast so that we can all learn from each other on how to be successful with ADHD. Remember, you can pick up our book on Audible, The ADHD Fix, or on Amazon, or wherever, wherever you get your books. Have an amazing day, and we will talk soon. Remember to pick up my latest book, What Grandpa Learned from His Honeybees, the little book to be smart with your money and help the environment on Amazon or Audible. Pick it up today.